It turned out to be my worst investment ever because while I met him at the age of 21, I stayed tied to him through countless, you know, brushes with death, countless arrests, countless bankruptcies, and until he died when he was 41 and I was 38. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive the following five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist I created from the lessons I've learned from all my guests. Second, you get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all 80 Stotts Academy courses. Fourth, you get access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you get my curated list of the top 10 podcast episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Meredith Elliott Powell. Meredith, are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock. Yeah. <laughs> I just laugh and I smile because I see your energy and I really appreciate it. So let me introduce you to the audience. Meredith Elliott Powell was voted one of the top 15 business growth experts to watch, the top 41 motivational speakers, and top sales expert on LinkedIn. Meredith is passionate about helping her clients learn the strategies to turn uncertainty to competitive advantage. She is the author of six books, including her latest called Thrive, Turning Uncertainty to Competitive Advantage, due out this month. In fact, it's due out in a week. Meredith, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Well, I think you did a pretty good job. I live in Asheville, North Carolina. And before COVID, I made my life as a keynote speaker. I traveled around the world, engaged with thousands of people, hopped on airplanes. So just like many people probably listening to this, my complete business was decimated. Not only did all my revenue disappear, but all of my business model became unworkable and unusable. So I have really spent the last 15, 16 months rebuilding and being re-energized and reinvigorated by what looked like a terrible disaster, but turned into new opportunity for me. You know, everybody's going through this and I think people have had different responses. I'm just curious, like what was the biggest challenge that you just thought, how am I going to turn this around? You know, I think about, you know, for instance, you being on a stage and you're not going to be on a stage. And then what was the biggest kind of surprise once you got through it about that transformation that you put yourself through? <laughs> great, great questions. Literally, I, you know, it was nothing for me to do 80 to 100 keynotes a year. And the biggest shock was that not only had all my revenue disappeared, but all of a sudden the way I made a living I didn't, I just was shocked at how little I diversified. I was thought I was so good because I was in different industries. I had done what traditional diversification meant, but I'd never thought about the fact, what if my model didn't work and that I needed to diversify the model to be different. And then the biggest surprise was once I slowed down, how much I loved being home. 
And I just started to think, what was I doing traveling that much and being gone that much? And that there was so much more to do with my business beyond just hopping on a plane and doing a keynote. Mm. You know, it's interesting because in the world of finance, we always talk about diversification. Yeah. But when the when everything gets bad, basically many assets classes are correlated. Like everything goes down. Right. So you think all this time, like I'm diversified, I have <laughs> bonds and I have stocks. And then all of a sudden you get in a crisis and everything goes down. Now, what I've learned in my own experience is that, okay, things come back up. So don't panic and get out at the bottom. But the point is, is that you probably, and this is really for the listener out there, you probably are much less diversified, not only financially, but also business-wise. And so I think, yeah. you know, this is a great lesson. Like, have you written a book? Have you done an online course where people are, are buying that? Have you done some coaching with people? Have you done, you know, all the different things that are out there to earn income? Once you've been through this type of crisis, you realize there's a lot of revenue streams out there. There's a lot of ways that people want to be reached. You know, people, they love audio, you know, audio books. Mm -hmm. And some people love reading books. And some people love it through podcasts. You know, it's just like reaching a lot of different parts of the market. is a great reminder for all of us. Yeah, yeah, it was a big lesson for me. The last time I was in Asheville was about six years ago, maybe seven years ago. My mom and dad lived in Charlotte. And so, oh, sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm a financial analyst in Thailand and there's a company in Thailand that owns a factory in Asheville. So I asked the company if I could go, if they'd arrange for me to meet the CEO of the company. And my dad being a, a polymers and plastics guy, he and I went to visit this factory and we just had a great time. So that was my last time there. So love it. Love it. <laughs> So anyways, well, let's, let's just, I want to just ask a little bit before we get into the, the big question, tell us about the book Thrive and what the listeners would get from, you know, getting it and tell us just about the, the launch details and, and how we can find out more. Of course, we'll have everything in the show notes, but give us the full details. Yeah, you know, it's kind of an interesting story. A couple of years ago, back in 2018, 2019, long before COVID, I became obsessed with the word uncertainty because every business that I was talking to, I mean, it was good economic times. We all remember 2018 and 2019. And every business I would talk to had asked the question, how's business? Everybody would answer the same. Oh my gosh, it's good. It's great. We're headed for our best year on record. But oh, this uncertainty. As if uncertainty always had to be a negative. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Even in good economic times, uncertainty is this cloud over our head. And I just started to think, what if you flip the script on that? What if you started to think about uncertainty as a positive? What if you actually started to strategically use it for personal and professional growth rather than view it as something that hindered growth? And that put me on a mission to find leaders and companies that had done that. And I discovered nine companies that have been around for over 250 years, which doesn't sound like a lot to you all in Thailand, but to us in the US, that is a big history. Mm -hmm. So if you think about you know, an organization that's been around for 250 years, they've come through world wars, they've come through economic depression, and unbeknownst to me at the time, they'd come through a pandemic. Well, 2019 hit and I was crazy, crazy busy. We started into 2020. I'm busy. I'd kind of let the research sit on the shelf. But when COVID hit, decimated my, my life, I thought, what am I going to do? Well, I went back to the research. I dug in a little bit further. And from the companies and from the stories, I discovered a nine-step formula. There were commonalities and themes 
things that you really need to be doing in your business. And consequently, I wrote for your personal life too. If you want to manage the constant shifts and changes that life shows us, whether it's as big as a pandemic, it's as small as new regulation, it's having a child go off to college or, you know, suffering a loss of a, of a loved one. This is the strategy you use to be somebody who runs to the sound of the gunfire and takes action rather than be somebody who's stuck. And that's what happened during the pandemic. People wanted to do something, but when uncertainty hits, we're confused, we're stuck. We need a path. And that's what I wrote. Mm, that's powerful. I mean, uh, it reminds me, of, I have a coffee business in Thailand and we import espresso machines from Italy. And we got invited to the 100th anniversary of a company in Italy. It really is the company that really, you know, was the fore, at the forefront of espresso machines. And we met, the name of the company is called Chimbley. And we met Mr. Chimbley. And it's been in the family for over 100 years now. And we thought, you know, it was so impressive. And what's so interesting about these companies that last a long time is how do you maintain the values of that business through all those ups and downs and not forget that 1917 pandemic or the 1957 Asian flu yeah. or the 1969 Hong Kong flu? Like, how do you maintain those? And I guess, Part of what you probably explore is just that. It's exactly that. And it is. So the book ends up being inspiring, being calming, because you see that people have come through far worse with far less resources than you ever did. And you're inspired because really amazing things came from it. So I'm very proud of the book. I'm very excited about the book. And I really want people to read it because I really believe it's gonna make a difference for people. And you simply find out about the book on Amazon. As you said, it's launching next week. You can also find it at my website, valuespeaker.com. And you can get a free download of a, of a chapter there as well. Fantastic, I'm looking at Amazon right now and there it is, Thrive there Strategies it. to Turn Uncertainty to Competitive Advantage. It's available like pre-order, I guess, or uh, Kindle, hardback, hardcover and paperback. Fantastic. And we're gonna have the audio as well. Yeah, I heard you talking about that on Larry's podcast and uh, yeah. selling from the heart. That's exciting. Well, last question. How would you describe kind of your unique thing that you bring to your clients? You know, there's lots of sales books. There's lots yeah. of sales people. There's lots of sales strategies and, you know, different things work for different people. But how would you describe what it is that's unique about what you bring to the client? You know, it took me a long time to really figure out what that was. And then one time I was doing an interview and somebody said, tell us a little bit about your background and your career. How'd you get started? And I started in travel and tourism. Then I went to healthcare and then I went to finance. And I thought, well, that's a crazy background. Who, who does that? And then what I figured out is I went into every single industry when they were going through massive disruption and change. I got into travel and tourism when the community had been wiped out by a hurricane. I got into healthcare when we were going through massive regulation. I got into banking when they were going through huge cutbacks and a lot of competitive, you know, new competitors getting into the marketplace. And what I've learned, and this is the unique thing I bring to businesses, is certainly I talk about strategy, sales, and leadership, but it is all about having a plan, having a strategy, and getting your people to embrace, be passionate, and excited about the disruption and change. So I get you prepared for it, and I get your team all engaged in taking ownership, because that's really what it takes to move the organization forward. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you know, that's, that's what we all need. In fact, I, before we turn on the recorder, 
I was telling Meredith how I was listening to Larry Levine's podcast and she was being interviewed on it from Selling from the Heart. And there was a mic drop moment where she said, and it really hit me. And I, I really want the listeners out there to think about what, what she said in that. And what she said was basically, your clients, your potential clients are out there looking for the solutions that you have. You have answers to their problems. And if you're not contacting them, if you're not in touch with them, they're looking for the answer to that solution somewhere else. And you end up arriving in the game at halftime. And it's very hard to win when you arrive at halftime. And as I said to her, that was a time that I kind of fell to my knees. Oh, <laughs> God. So I was excited to get you on. And I know already through that message, but also through what you just said, I can feel a lot of inspiration also that you bring to the relationships around you. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and tell us your story. Oh, I'd love to tell you. So, you know, I was so excited when you asked me to be on this show and talk about my worst investment ever and that it didn't have to be financially related because it's interesting. Once I discuss my story and tell it to you, everything I learned from it, I feel has been the reasons my life has worked out in the end. I got married the first go round when I was just 21 years old. I had lost my father not long before. And as soon as my father passed away, in walked the man that I just knew once I looked at him that I was going to marry. I was knees weakened. I was endlessly in love and couldn't wait to start a relationship with this man. Just a short three years later, we were married and it turned out to be my worst investment ever. And the reason it turned out to be my worst investment ever is because what I didn't tell you about the story is that my father died of alcoholism when I was just 21 years old. In fact, my family is riddled in alcoholism. To date, I've lost six male members of my family. I also come from a family that didn't talk about such things. My mother wanted to pretend that things were good because she just wanted to protect her children and raise us in what she could create or save of a happy home. So the moment my father died, in walked his replacement. And it turned out to be my worst investment ever because while I met him at the age of 21, I stayed tied to him through countless, you know, brushes with death, countless arrests, countless bankruptcies, and until he died when he was 41 and I was 38. And while it's a little bit difficult to describe as a worst investment because I learned so much from it and I wouldn't be where I am without it. Also, he's a human being who was suffering from a disease, but I did waste some of the good and best years of my life trying to save an investment that had zero desire to be saved. Wow. So how would you describe, I mean, you know, I want you to think about a young man or woman, you know, who is in that similar type of situation. How would you describe the lessons that you've learned from this experience? <laughs> so good, so easy to reflect right now is that number one is really, I've learned to trust my gut, not my head. I believe that my intuition, my gut knew that I shouldn't get married, knew that there was something wrong, but my head kept overriding it because everybody else loved him. Everybody else thought he 
was great. The second is that I needed to have the courage to do what was right for me, not what I thought society wanted me to do. You know, I'm raised a good Catholic girl. And once you get married, a good Catholic girl, you're married forever. And you're supposed to stay in this as long as it takes. Also, people felt like it was my responsibility to, to save him. And I bought into that as well. And so to really have the courage to live your life and to live your voice, I'm so inspired by people in their 20s who kind of defy what society is telling them to do and, and walk their own path. Because I didn't have the courage to do that until I was 38 or, or 39 years old. And the most important lesson that I learned that I've taken away is that I can't fix things I can't control. And while that is, that sounds like something personal, I've taken it into business. I can't help customers that don't want to be helped. I can't save employees that don't want to do the work. My job is to communicate what I need the outcome to be, whether that's in my personal life, this is how I want the marriage to look, or this is how I want the friendship to look, or this is, these are the rules of working in my business, or as a company, if I'm going to do this for you, this is what I need you to do. And then when people don't do it, I need to let it go and walk away. I just had a wave of kind of tears come to me because I also felt, you know, when I was growing up, there was this movement called tough love. And that yeah. was the idea that sometimes you have to stand up and say, you know, you got to do this yourself and I can help you, but I can't do it for you. And, you know, it just said it hit me so hard because I think also for the listeners out there, it's not just in our personal lives, it's in our business lives. As yeah. Meredith said, you know, I, I can't help you unless you're open to, to being helped. And before I go into kind of my takeaways on this, I just want to talk a little bit about this. So I, I hear about, you know, listening to your gut having courage and realizing that you can't fix, you know, someone else. My question is when you're young, you don't have all of these experiences. How could you find, you know, like, obviously there's some, let's say some people out there, men or women that are young that do have that courage and they're in touch with their, yeah. but then there's that other group of people who are not, and they're struggling and they're about to kind of make this mistake. You're like, how do you get more in touch and listen to your gut. When what a great question. Yeah. yeah. I think number one is you've got to surround yourself with the right people. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is when I finally made the decision to legally separate from my husband, we never divorced. I, I just couldn't go that far. But my mother, whom, whom I loved, really had trouble with that. She felt like I should stay by his side and I should help him and, and support him. And I had to put her at a distance and I had to surround myself with people who maybe didn't agree with what I was doing, didn't understand what I was doing, but could support me in what I was doing. So you really, as a young person, you really need to surround yourself with about five good people, people that you admire how they live their values, and that they don't judge you, tell you what to do. They just love you and support you. Because I could have been making the wrong decision. I could have fallen flat on my face. But the power was that I was making a decision that was right for me. And, and until I was 38 years old, I made decisions that were right for other people. That's where you go wrong. 
That is where you go wrong. And when you think you're making decisions that are right for other people, it's probably not even right for other people what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I'm doing this for want, you. Yeah, people want you to make decisions that validate their bad decisions. Mm. You know, and that's really what I found is like my mother didn't want me out of that situation because I would have then somehow passed judgment on her staying with my father or something. You know, it's a tangled web of psychology, but I really believe everything I do in my business, I learn from spending so much, so many years riddled in alcoholic relationships. I figured out I was an enabler. I figured out I focused on things I couldn't control. I lost the energy to focus on what I could. I mean, the lessons are endless. Yeah. So maybe I'll share a few things that I take away. I've been just taking notes furiously as you've been speaking. And um, now I live with my mother. She's 83. And at the age, she grew up in Virginia. And at the mm -hmm. age of 20, she got married. And she tells the story of how my father and her, at that time, she had to bring her father down to get the marriage license because she was under 21. And uh, there was a joke that my dad didn't have any money. So it was a dollar or two, two dollars for the marriage certificate. And he had to borrow it from her father. Now, turns out my father didn't have any problem with alcohol. And they had almost 59 years of a happy marriage. Yeah, that's great. And that's, that's amazing to me as I look back, like the luck of the draw in some oh, cases. Oh, you know. so true. But we did have a brush with alcoholism in our family. And that was when I got addicted. And I was wow. a 17 year old kid that was involved with alcohol and drugs. And my life started falling apart and I started getting into serious trouble with it. And, you know, I'm just going back. I wrote down something, you know, you were saying about your, your mother wanting to, you know, say that, you know, things are okay. And, you know, try to make excuses kind of for what's going on and it's fine and everything's good. And in my mother's case, she just stood up to that and said, this is not, you know, I won't allow this in my life. You know, I'll do everything I can to help. And so they got me into treatment centers at a young age. And, and I managed to get sober in 1982. And then after that, I graduated from this treatment center I was in, in 1983. And then my mom said, well, you're going to be 18 soon. So it's time to go out on your own and you've got to go do it. You have the, what you need. And we don't want to live through a relapse. That's your problem. And you need to solve it yourself. So impressive. And I had the 12 steps, you know, and 12 step programs out there. Of course, there's Al-Anon nowadays. It's so easy for anybody struggling with alcoholism themselves or alcoholism in their family. There's plenty of ways that you can reach out to Alcoholics Anonymous, to Al-Anon for men and women who are not alcoholics, but are in families with alcoholism. There's just a lot of resources out there. So I really want to encourage anybody that's yeah. facing that kind of problem. It's out there. And, you know, that was almost, let's say, almost 40 years ago. And I haven't taken a drink or a drug in almost 40 years. Oh, that's so impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. And that's part of, you know, people are like, you're really good with your mom. And, you know, you bringing her to live with you in Thailand. I thought my mom was devoted to to helping me overcome a very serious challenge. And she didn't do it through enabling me or thinking that by preventing me from suffering the consequences, she was helping me. She basically kind of managed my collision with the consequences and made sure I felt it and used that as a tool. And so as my mother's now 
at an age of 83 and she needs support and help just like I needed it there. What a great opportunity to have gotten sobriety and then be able to bring that back to my mom. So, you know, it's just, it's great to hear your story and what you've overcome. And I, I really appreciate that. So that's kind of my big takeaway from your story. Well, that's a huge takeaway. And that's a beautiful, beautiful story. And you have an incredible mother because most parents are not that tough. It's the hardest thing. I can't even, I've never had to do it with a child. So I can't even, I can't even imagine, but that is love at a true higher level. And you see the difference it made. Yeah. yeah. And I think nowadays too, it's like, whether it, you know, I look at the stock market as an example, the economy in the U S and nobody wants to allow other people to suffer. Yeah. You know exactly I mean? right. The fed is there to save the day. So no matter how high you push housing prices, no matter how high you push stock market prices, somebody's going to prevent the suffering. And uh, right. it's just a different world than what I was brought up in. So it's, it's sometimes hard to understand how it's like feeding an addict, basically. So let me ask you, mm-hmm. I want you to think about that young, let's just imagine a young 20-year-old woman out there in somewhat similar situation as you were in. And think of her as I ask this question, based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend that she take to avoid suffering the same fate? That I would tell her to find your voice, to really spend time figuring out what kind of life you want to lead, and then really ask yourself, what are you doing? What is preventing you from getting that life? And what are you doing right to get that life? And that'll start to point out where the actions you're taking. I guess I'm not explaining this very well, but it was kind of surprising to me. One day I woke up and I figured out, I felt like my life was a mess. But what I realized was if I wasn't married to an addict, it wouldn't be a mess. Like nothing else about my life was a mess, really. Nothing that wasn't fixable. That suffering is a choice. And it's not an easy decision either way, but there was no need for me to go down with the ship. The ship Mm. was going down and there was no need for me to go down with it. That's great. And I think, you know, the idea of valuing yourself and then when things go bad or feel bad, you know, to say, what do I want and how do I stay true to, to that? So very great advice. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Oh, my number one goal for the next 12 months is easy. If I could be on a soapbox telling people how to turn uncertainty to competitive advantage. And a lot of what we talked about is the reason I wrote about it in your personal, in your personal life. I added that on is that that's my goal. I really want to help people start to view what life throws you as rather than a negative is to see the opportunity in it, because that's where you're going to find the path forward. Mm, Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com. And I look forward to seeing you there. As we conclude, Meredith, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Thoughts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just that it's been a fabulous show. It's been an honor to share my story and I can't wait to be part of the community. Amen. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. 
and our health. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on the upside.